Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So Genesis chapter 42, beginning to read at verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognised his brothers, they did not recognise him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison, so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and that you do not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, that we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realise that Joseph could understand them, since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken away from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, 
they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get the feed for his donkey. And he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? Well, good morning again, and Tom, thank you for reading that for us. Do keep your Bibles open. We're actually looking not just at that one chapter, but actually across four chapters this morning, from Genesis 42 to Genesis 45. And so having a Bible to hand will help us very much in the next few moments. Uh, Also, I hope you'll find in the bundle you receive on the way in a a white handout like this one. That contains an outline of where we're going. You might find that useful to have to hand in the next few moments. I want to pray again for all of us as we turn back to God's words. So let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that there is a day coming when the race that you have set for us is finished and our work is done. We thank you that that day will be a day of great joy, of great happiness and ending of pain and sorrow. And we pray now that as we wait for that day, you would help us to be a people of faith who trust in you and your promises. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend who loves to read books, but she has a habit of having to read the the final page of the book before she can begin the first page. And when I first heard about this habit, I, I thought it sounded completely silly. It, it ruins the whole flow of the story to begin with the ending. But as I've gone through life, and as I've, and I'm sure others here too, have started to realize what living in this world is like, there's a longing in us to know how the stories that we live in, the real stories of our lives, how they end. Uh, When we are in difficulties, we long to know that things will turn out okay. So when I get ill, I long to know that I'll get better and soon. Uh, When I find myself stressed or exhausted, I I want to know that very soon things will get better. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. There'll be many people here this morning involved in all kinds of stories. And we long to know how they end. We want them to end well. Uh, Maybe it is a story about our health. Maybe it's a story about our children going through exams. We want them to do well. Maybe it's a story about a strained relationship. And we long to know that in the future that relationship will be healed. Maybe it's a stress at work. And uh, we long to be in a job where we're not overwhelmed by stress. And when we speak to God about our stories that he puts us into as we pray to him. So often our prayers are prayers about the ending of the story that we long for. So we pray, dear God, please make me better. Dear God, please help so-and-so do well in their exams. Father, please help this relationship to be restored. Please give me a job that I don't feel stressed about. We're in the middle of a series looking at Jacob and his family. And the big temptation for us is to rush forward to the end, to the final page. And uh, as a spoiler alert, um, we are in chapter 42 now. Um, Just so you know that um, 
Uh, there's a famine on, but the, the brothers go to Egypt. They meet the prime minister. He turns out to be Joseph. Joseph forgives them. He gives them grain. There's hugs and kisses and tears, and it's happily ever after for this family. And most of us know the story well, and we, we rush to the end and go, well, it's all going to work out fine in the end. But this morning, that ending is four chapters away. And this morning, we must not rush to the end. The ending matters, but how we get there is also crucial for this story. And as we trace through the details of the next four chapters, we are going to get one of the most stunning insights in all of Scripture as to why God allows his people, whom he loves dearly, to go through stories that leave us baffled and perplexed and in tears, and why it's not just about the ending, but also about how we get there. I want to work through these four chapters by zooming in on the three main groups in front of us, and then we'll think about implications for us. So the first group on the handout there is the family and uh, it's clear straight away that all is not well at home with Jacob and his family. Look at verse 1 of chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? People are hungry. There's grain in Egypt. It's an obvious thing. Why don't the boys just go to Egypt? And the reason why which we know about, is because Egypt holds a dark secret for these sons. They know that they sold their brother as a slave to Egypt. They haven't told dad yet. It's been 22 years now since that deception, that that terrible act. It still hasn't been sorted out. And so they don't want to go to Egypt. They have to be forced to go. They do eventually set off. But then notice, um, as they head down, verse 4 But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. The last time that dad, Jacob, sent his favorite son off with the other sons, Joseph, he didn't come back. And 22 years later, Jacob doesn't trust his sons an inch. He will not give them Benjamin because he's afraid that he won't come back either. They say that time is a great healer, and I'm sure it can be, but it has not been for this family. If this family were part of our small group, and it came to that time in the evening when we went to share our prayer requests, the kind of things that they would open up about would be their circumstances, the heat of the circumstances. So they would say, please, would you pray for the famine? It's, it's brutal. We need some grain. But what you would not hear them asking for prayer for is their hearts. I've got a trouble telling the truth. I am full of envy and self-centeredness. I'm a dad who shows favoritism to his sons and it, it ruins the family. You wouldn't hear that. Matters of the heart left beneath the surface, unaddressed, undealt with for 22 years. And when it comes to our own lives, perhaps our own prayer requests, so often we focus on 
the heat of our circumstances, things like famines, hunger, practical needs, things that distress us at a, a kind of circumstantial level. But so often we don't ask for prayer for matters of the heart, things like jealousy and envy and favoritism and truth-telling and self-centeredness. And so after 22 years, here's the family in the same state as they were before. Next, Joseph, verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. There is something extraordinarily satisfying about this moment in the story because 22 years ago, God gave Joseph two dreams that his family would bow down to him. And after all the twists and turns and betrayals and setbacks, that moment has come true. His brothers bow down, verse 7. And so, so verse 7, as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them and said, Aha, at last I win. Well, that's probably what I would have said in that moment, but that's not what he says. So verse 7 again. Joseph pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Mm. Now, let's be clear that Joseph, he does definitely recognize his brothers. That's clear. It's underlined for us again in verse 8. And let's also be clear, he totally remembers the dreams. That's verse 9. But look at what he says. Verse 9. You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Of all the reactions that we might have expected from Joseph at this crucial moment of confrontation, my guess is most of us would not have come up with the your spies response from Joseph. It seems to make no sense at all from the narrative. What is he doing? Uh, Some people think that he's trying to seek revenge, but if he were seeking revenge, he had the power to just click his fingers and have these brothers taken off to prison, even executed. He doesn't. And then there's the rather awkward fact that at almost every scene in the story, Joseph seems to end up crying at some point in the scene. It it doesn't feel like revenge. Others uh, say, well, he, he wants to forgive the brothers. And he does forgive them, but it's not just forgiveness. Because if it was just forgiveness, he would have said to the brothers there and then, it's me, Joseph, I forgive you. But he says, you're spies. What on earth is he doing? The details give the answer. Verse 14. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you. You are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. Joseph is testing the brothers. More specifically, he's testing them in the kinds of areas where he knows in the past they've really fallen down. So he tests them on their truthfulness. Are they telling the truth? He also tests them on their family relationships. So remember how... um, 
they treated him badly as the youngest and the favorite. Well, what about Benjamin, the next youngest, the, the, the other favorite son? Will dad allow Benjamin to go with the brothers to Egypt? And if dad does, how will the brothers treat Benjamin when that happens? He's testing the brothers. And he's testing them in a way that is designed to bring about change in their lives. As we read through the story, we find Joseph putting these brothers through the same kind of roller coaster ride that he himself has already experienced from God's hand. We've seen, haven't we, how the story of his life has gone up and down, down in, in, in sort of as a slave, up in Potiphar's house, down back into prison, up as prime minister of Egypt. It's been an absolute roller coaster ride. And he's putting the brothers through a similar topsy-turvy experience all of his own. And so, verse 24, he has Simeon bound, ready for prison. And then, verse 25, there's this whole business of silver. The brothers pay for their grain, but then Joseph has that silver money put back in their sacks and sent home with the boys. And on the way back, they discover in their sacks that this silver is here. Uh, what is Joseph doing then? Well, he is manufacturing a scenario where the brothers will be accused of doing something they didn't do, a false accusation regarding money, just as he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. In all of this, Joseph loves his brothers too much to simply forgive them, No, he wants to transform them from lying, jealous, self-centered scoundrels into men who can play their part in God's people and in blessing the world. That's Joseph, the brothers. Well, they go home with grain, but of course it runs out, and then there's an argument with dad about whether Benjamin can go back with them to Egypt, and eventually dad says he can go, but only because of what Judah says. And do flick forward to chapter 43 now, and look at what Judah promises to dad, verse nine of chapter 43. Judah says, I myself will guarantee his, Benjamin's, safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. And so with that promise from Judah to Jacob, the brothers head down with Benjamin on their second visit. And as we see them track through this second visit, I think we see some key signs of them being transformed. At one sign is their integrity. So 22 years ago, they lied about selling Joseph as a slave, and they got some money from it. They didn't tell anyone about the money. But this time around, on visit two, they own up to one of Joseph's servants about the, gold, the silver in their sack and said, look, you know, we didn't mean to take it, but here it is back again. In other words, when it comes to money and honesty, they, they pass the test, they've changed. Then their envy. And um, once the rather awkward business of the money's um, cleared up, Joseph holds a great banquet for the brothers. But notice how it begins. So glance forward to verse 34 of chapter 43, right at the end of the chapter When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin, his portion was five times as much as anyone else's. Now remember, there's there's a famine on. These brothers are starving. 
And yet the youngest one gets five times more food than anyone else. And it's a very similar dynamic to when Jacob showed favoritism to Joseph with his um, cloak. Here, the brothers are faced with a kind of obvious act of favoritism, Benjamin getting the best serving. How will they respond? Well, they don't try to murder Benjamin. We're told, so they feasted and drank freely with him. There is no hint now of the old envy and jealousy with these brothers. And finally, most clearly of all, there is a change in their selfishness. After the feast, Joseph sends the, the brothers back up to, uh, to dad with uh, more grain. But this time, the twist is that uh, Joseph puts into Benjamin's sack a cup from the banquet table, one of Joseph's personal cups. And sure enough, on the way up, Joseph sends his servants after the brothers. They accost them. They open up Benjamin's sack, and there is the cup. The brothers are carted back to Egypt. And it seems as if Benjamin's life hangs by a thread. And then comes the longest speech in the whole book of Genesis. It is a wonderful speech. I wish we had more time to read it. As Judah steps forward in the crucial moment and pleads for Benjamin's life. And uh, we'll just pick it up right at the end of the speech. So chapter 44 and verse 33. Verse 33. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy Benjamin, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. It's a remarkable transformation. In the past, Judah was happy to make his father miserable by lying about Joseph. Now he cannot bear the thought of his father being sad again. In the past, he happily sold his brother into slavery. Now he himself is willing to become a slave to rescue Benjamin. It's a remarkable shift from self-centeredness to to selflessness. No longer caring about his own needs, but caring for the needs of others. And it's at this point when Joseph sees just how far Judah has come. That's the moment when he knows his work is done with these boys. And he cries out, it's me, Joseph. And there are hugs and tears. We might question Joseph's methods. They, they seem at times harsh, extreme. But commenting on his behavior, one writer put it this way. Just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the growth of quite new attitudes in the brothers as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. Alternating sun and frost. I think that's a brilliant summary of how Joseph treated his brothers. There was sun, there was moments of warmth and of help, but there was frost, moments of withdrawal and severity in his behavior. But all along, he was acting in a way that would bring about the transformation of his brothers. Well, it's quite a story, isn't it? I wish we had more time to dig into the details, but as we think through what it means for us, how can we understand this story? Well, we've been seeing through the series that Joseph foreshadows Christ, 
And here he is a picture of how God rules over his people through his chosen man. And so as we watch Joseph rule over the brothers, we are being given a glimpse of how God rules over us today. And so four big implications for us this morning. The first is the forecast is for sun and frost. In his love, God's goal for us is more than our salvation or our happiness. His goal for us is transformation. And so like the brothers, there are areas of our lives that need to change. Maybe it is in their areas. Maybe it's the area of integrity, how we use our speech. Maybe it's in the area of envy and jealousy. We look at other people and we are racked full of bitterness at what they have and we don't have. Maybe it is in the area of selfishness. We have become turned in on ourselves, preoccupied with our needs, not the needs of those around us. God really cares about these things. He wants to create a people who will go out into the world and be a blessing. The church today is how he will bless the world as we proclaim the gospel promises and live as he would have us live. And the story of Joseph is showing us that God has a plan for our transformation. And it will at times involve sun and it will at times involve frost. Maybe that's why in our lives, at times when we pray for a particular area and the Lord seems to respond quickly, wonderfully with blessing, but at other times in our Christian life, we've prayed and pleaded and begged the Lord and it seems as if the heavens are closed to our prayers. Nothing changes. As we look back over our Christian life, is it not the case that often there can be times of blessing? We look at what's happening around us and it just seems wonderful how the Lord's been looking after us. But then there are other seasons in life when there's just one disaster after another that they pile up and we're left completely baffled by what God is doing. Hebrews 12 tells us that just as an earthly father disciplines the children he loves, so our heavenly father trains us. And the story of Joseph is showing us one of the ways that our heavenly father will change us. The forecast is for sun and frost. Second, no, we won't always know. As you read through the story, that the brothers are frequently perplexed by this strange man who is the prime minister of Egypt. He just does things that make no sense to them at all. And so, too, we can be perplexed at times at how God chooses to rule over us and in our lives. And I think this story is a help to us because it's showing us that it is, it is normal for God's people to be perplexed by the way the story is unfolding. I think at times it is possible for us to look at a set of hard circumstances and to see by God's kindness how he is using those hard things for, for good purposes. At, at times that is possible. But, but often we can't see any good thing that comes out of a hard season. We rack our brains, we ask our friends, we, we let time pass by. We, just, we see nothing good. It seems utterly baffling. And the experience of the brothers, I think, helps us to know that it is okay. It is often normal that we won't know. 
And so when it comes to a, a relationship that comes to an end, when it comes to a loss of a job, when it comes to serious poor health, when it comes to all kinds of hard stories in our lives, the story of Joseph, who would have thought that God would use a global famine to help fix the envy of a family? Who would have thought of using slavery and betrayal to lead to promotion to prime minister? So often we cannot possibly see from our circumstances how God is doing something good. I am aware this morning that we are touching on on deep things this morning. And the Bible has lots to say about suffering, lots of different strands we need to hold together as we think through how a loving God allows suffering in our lives. But there is a crucial strand here in this story which we need to cling on to, which is that God is using hard things in our lives for good, but we won't always know why or how. And yet, there is a day coming, just as Joseph stepped forward at the end and says, it's me. It was me all along. There will be a moment for us, for Christians, when the one who rules over our lives will step forward and say, it it was me all along. I was in charge of your life. And I think then we'll understand how his sun and frost was used for our good. But for now, no, we won't always know. Third, don't doubt the love of God. Throughout this story, Joseph has a, a public face and a private face. That The public one is often scary. When he makes a command, people do it without question. And then the private face well, he almost always seems to weep. And when we get to the kind of climax of the story and, and Judah sort of offers himself in place of Benjamin, when Joseph sees what's happening, he, he goes and weeps so loudly that the Egyptians in the next door palace hear him weeping. It's all rather awkward. This isn't one of those moments where you know, there's a bit of dust in your eye and you just sort of turn away and it's all fine again. This is, this is full body, gut-wrenching sobbing. Because as Joseph puts his brothers through this sun and frost, he doesn't do so removed from the distress it causes them. He cares about what it's doing to them. He is moved by their confusion and plight. And I think this is a wonderful, crucial picture of how our Heavenly Father feels when he allows us to go through things that are sunny and frosty, where we are left absolutely confused by what he's doing. He does not waste our tears. He's not left unmoved by our plight. As the hymn puts it, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Don't doubt the love of God. Finally, watch out for the brother's reaction. In that first chapter we had read, chapter 42, when they find the silver in their sack, in verse 21, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. I think that reaction is a reaction that I've heard almost every Christian say at some point in their lives, surely I am being punished by God. A a past mistake, a past sin has come back to get me. God is now punishing me for what I've done, like a 
a sort of spiritual karma where there's a cause over here and there's an effect over here. But that is not how God cares for his people. If we are someone trusting in Christ this morning, then when Christ died on the cross, he bore in his body the punishment for our sins once and for all. And God does not judge one sin twice. And so when Christ was punished, he will never punish us. And so whatever we experience from his hand, it is never in Christ's punishment. And that helps us to know his heart. He is not out to get us. He is not waiting for us to trip up. He is a heavenly father who cares about his children deeply. I have a friend who always reads the last page first. As Christians, we have already been given the final page of our story. The final page tells us that there's a day coming in the future when all the smaller stories of this broken world all come to an end and when there is a wonderful reunion between the God who has ruled over us and us, his people. And on that day, he will step forward and say, it was me all along. I was the one involved in your lives. I love you. I'm sure there'll be tears and weeping and hugs. And whilst we hold on to that final page, let's also be a people who are prepared for how the story unfolds until we get there. The Lord has a plan for us. It involves transformation. It'll be hard at times, unexpected. But when that final day comes, we will see that he had it right all along. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that there is a day coming when our race is finished and the work you prepared for us is done. Father, we thank you that we will see the Lord Jesus face to face. We thank you that that ending is actually the beginning of a whole eternity in a world put right. And Father, until then, please help us to be a people who walk by faith and not by sight, trusting in your goodness and in your promises. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.